Hello, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. You can listen and subscribe to the show for free on Spotify, TuneIn, iHeartRadio, Blog Talk Radio, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, and Audible. For network or show information, visit fightradio.me. And now, the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Good day, everyone, and thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. Today, my special guest is Peter Canova, and we'll be talking about his work as well as his book, Quantum Spirituality, Science, Gnostic Mysticism, and Connecting with Source Consciousness. From the dawn of history, a universal wisdom tradition has existed that explains humanity's purpose in the cosmos and our relationship to the Master Source Consciousness. This mystical philosophy was harnessed by the ancient seers known as Gnostics, who were in direct contact with Source Consciousness. As Peter Canova revealed, not only do the ancient teachings of Gnosticism contain important spiritual truths, but they profoundly align with the modern sciences of quantum physics and psychology. They can also provide us with a transformative path to a higher consciousness and practical tools to create your own reality. Peter Canova is a highly successful, multilingual, international businessman who, after a series of life-changing spiritual experiences, began studying and writing on spirituality and consciousness. He is author of the 25 Times award-winning First Souls Trilogy, and he also hosts a podcast, Quantum Spirituality, on Dream Vision 7 Radio Network. For more information, you can visit his website, which is www.petercanova.com, and that's P-E-T-E-R, C-A-N-O-V-A.com. And with that, I'd like to welcome Peter to the show. Good day, Peter. Well, thank you for that introduction, and it's great to be with you tonight. Thank you. I'm, I'm looking forward to our conversation. I've, I've learned a lot from reading your book. Uh, things I didn't even know I didn't know. Um, so I'm really looking forward to um, enlightening our listeners and then also um, having them pick up and read your book because it's a really good one. So. Um, right. Let's start Thank first you. with. You're welcome. Let's start first with the you know the title. I mean, it's quantum spirituality, and um, mm-hmm. in it uh, you you um, talk about it as being the merger of ancient mystical wisdom and science. So, can you explain a little bit more in detail, you know, about the qualities that are that go into this mix? Yeah, well, I think there's really four elements that are critical in terms of understanding not just my book, but understanding all reality itself, and that is uh, consciousness, light, energy, and matter. And interestingly enough, um, quantum science or quantum physics has really, up until recently, only covered three of those, which is light, energy, and matter. But now we have uh, an emerging trend among scientists to view consciousness as the source of all these other three elements, that they're really consciousness is the foundation and light, energy, and matter are the results of consciousness. And interestingly enough, the ancient Gnostic masters, the Gnostic mystical masters, and we can discuss Gnosticism if your listeners don't have an awareness of it, but these ancient Judeo-Christian spiritual mystics um, understood not only light, matter, and energy, but they also understood consciousness. So they were a little bit ahead of the curve uh, as far as quantum physics. Um, interestingly enough, there is a fifth thing that I've been talking about for some time, and it's now just in the last couple of years emerging in scientific circles, and that is information. So we have, if if we buy at least provisionally the proposition that there is one conscious source that literally created 
all the forms and all the phenomena that we consider reality. And that that consciousness expresses itself through light, which in turn becomes matter. And that's a scientific fact, light and matter are interchangeable. Matter is simply uh, light energy at a slow rate of vibration. So if we buy the proposition that consciousness expresses itself in energy and matter, the thread of the link that would make all those things work is really information. And information you can think about as the DNA of the whole equation. So just the way our bodies have a DNA code in them that actually controls the details of our physical forms. Uh, information is contained in this light energy, this intelligent light energy, and the information literally gives form to all the various appearances that we see in our three-dimensional world of, of matter. So if we take these five elements that I've spoken of and examine them in their totality, there's the link between the ancient spiritual wisdom and modern quantum physics, hence the term quantum spirituality. Yeah, wow. Um, so the idea of consciousness, first of all, um, wasn't there a time when um, it was believed that it was matter that led to consciousness? I mean, consciousness wasn't kind of a primary source, so to speak, of, of yeah. what we experience. Well, it, it, it was in the <clears throat> among the ancient uh, mystics. However, you're, you're absolutely correct in terms of modern science. Science is bifurcated into what I call traditional materialist science and the more cutting-edge advanced quantum science. So traditional materialist science, which largely develops prior to 1900 when they really started understanding quantum mechanics, um, took a view that reality was a bottom-up process, that somehow there were these single cellular organisms that somehow collided and combined to form more complex organisms and structures leading up to, um, you know, human human beings and the human brain. So they, they essentially look at our existence as a matter of random chance occurrences at a molecular level that, that just happened. Well, there's, there's huge flaws in that. It doesn't work. Because, for one thing, they've never been able to explain how inorganic matter all of a sudden became organic. Uh, nor, nor does the whole idea that, um, you know, if you, if you can even get beyond that one, um, you know, the whole idea that uh, life is just sort of a random chance occurrence that uh, these uh, uh, unintelligent uh, bits of or molecular bits of uh, matter somehow forms intelligent species uh, in the plant and animal kingdom, it, it's really a stretch. And it, it's kind of inexcusable in a way. It's very unscientific in effect. Um, then we're now starting to see a movement in science, and it's a growing movement. It's not the majority of scientists probably don't admit to it, but uh, there's a group of them now that are saying, no, matter and life didn't happen that way. It's a top-down process where consciousness was the foundation or source of everything, and it projected reality as we know it. And from a scientific standpoint, that makes a lot more sense because it gets rid of a lot of paradoxes and things that just really don't make sense uh, in the, you know, traditional materialist scientific view. So essentially what we're seeing now is a little bit of a struggle uh, in the realm of science where uh, the consciousness, the people who are understanding the role of consciousness are pushing back materialist view of creation. Very, very, very interesting to uh, see how that will unfold in the next, uh, you know, 10, 15 years. Yeah, it, it will be, and you know the. I mean, whenever you're trying to, you know, change a paradigm, I mean, that's kind of like turning a ship around. You know, while it's right in the middle of the ocean, you know, sometimes it, you know, it takes a while. Um, now, the idea of consciousness. You know, when it comes time to, um, it's maybe some of the difficulty in. Um, recognizing consciousness as maybe the starting point, um, the idea that maybe it's hard to measure. I mean, in, you know, the traditional material world and science, 
we, you know, always look toward um, proving, you know, a particular hypothesis. You know, I mean, trying to trying to go through and um, measure, you know, something. And something like consciousness maybe is a difficult thing to measure. Well, yeah, I mean, there's there's no physical way that you can put consciousness under a microscope and measure it, but. But we we should also be aware that even Einstein's theory of relativity is still a theory, uh, even though it's a theory that looks very factual to us. But there are little question marks that even arise with relativity uh, when there is, as they're making um, you know new discoveries of things that may actually have the potential to go faster than the speed of light and so forth. So um, almost everything in the scientific world. Uh, of any major consequences still at some stage of hypothesis uh, or theory, particularly when, when it comes to issues like, um, um, you know, the origin of life and, and creation and, and, and so forth. What we have to really look at, I think, is the footprints that, um, you know, consciousness uh, leaves. And you look at, um, you look at sort of like, um, it's sort of like a piece of the be able to, connect pieces of the puzzle around the periphery, but the center part of it is still kind of blank. Well, we have pieces in the periphery that we can look at. I mean, the fact that, um, you know, the the chances of life occurring randomly, I think that even scientists have estimated to be uh, almost a near impossibility that it's a chance, it's a chance occurrence. There's just to the, 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 the needle, the eye of the needle is just too narrow for life as we know it to, uh, you know, have, have happened. And that right away indicates that, you know, there looks to be some kind of organization, some kind of force uh, behind uh, the formation of physical life, the universe, and, you know, even unseen unseen dimensions, parallel dimensions of uh, existence. Uh, and you know, we we see the we see the hallmarks of this everywhere. I mean, you, I I really believe that our scientific discoveries are not so much discoveries as they are remembrances. Because if you take a look at the human brain and you take a look at computer technology, um, you know the the the, the instances of, of correlation between you know memory storage, um, you know so forth and so on are are so um, dramatic that you know you have to think that there is a pattern out there that um, kind of pre-existed a pattern of the way that uh, energy and life works at a higher level that essentially we kind of um, our, our visionaries kind of glom onto and they imitate it so essentially what I'm saying is the, what the ancients were saying the ancients were saying essentially there was a blueprint out there a consciousness has created a blueprint for creation and what we do as we make things that we call new discoveries is we're tapping into aspects of that blueprint and imitating it on a physical level. So, uh, you know, there, I, I don't think you're ever going to find a way to split consciousness under a Hadron Collider uh, or see it under a microscope. Um, but what I think we really have to do to understand it is look at the patterns of existence. Uh, look at, look at the, the, the nature of energy, the nature of life. And, uh, and some of the other things that we've been talking about here. And when you start to add all that up, which I do in my book, incidentally, and it's very hard to get into all the details right now, but um, <laughs> that's a lot of what my book is about, is really describing those forces. Yeah, it is. And, and, and as I kind of mentioned to you before we started, the, the organization of your book is, I enjoyed the organization. It's, you know, you had like 32 chapters, but they're small. Um, they're simple, um, you know, to read, and you know, it's you know, you kind of build on one after another till till you know the reader can you know begin to begin to understand. You know, it's going to take a while, I think, for me to kind of wrap my head around you know all of the things that are in your book. But um, it was uh, it started, you know, the process has started. So um, now. I want to talk to, go back to um, Gnosticism in a little bit, but I want to first, there was one thing in your book um, that I, you know, I found interesting and I wanted the readers to, um, or the listeners, to know about it. And in your book, you have a section called Your your Story. You said, my story, I get startling, startling, get a startling awakening. So 
Um, would you mind sharing that, you know, that awakening that you had? Because I think what you went through is what probably a lot of people are going through right now. Yeah, and it's really what led me to um, kind of back off the business world, even though I'm still very much involved with business, but kind of back off the business world to get into this whole second existence of being on talk shows like yours and writing books. But when I was in my 20s, um, I discovered that, uh, and, I, and when I say discovered, I was in a, a sort of a, actually a, a one-week course that was dealing with uh, what they, you know, used to call ESP, extrasensory perception. They don't use the term as much anymore, but, um, and I found that I was a very accurate medical intuitive. So all somebody had to do was give me the name, age, and address of somebody, and I could pretty much, um, you know, diagnose what was going on with it physically or even psychologically. And, I, I mean, I did this in case after case after case, but it came to me almost like instantly, and it was very startling to me because I had no antecedents to this, no real experience with anything in, you know, what you call the psychic world of psychic phenomena. And as soon as my rational part of my mind uh, took a back seat and the intuitive part of my mind was allowed to come forth, I started experiencing all kinds of phenomena like remote viewing, clairvoyance, clairaudience, uh, premonitions, uh, even premonitions that saved, saved my life. And uh, this world of uh, consciousness, of, of a higher consciousness or another level of consciousness, um, became way more to me than just an intellectual proposition. It became a reality. Now, being a Capricorn, I wasn't just satisfied <laughs> to have the experiences, but I wanted to understand the nuts and bolts behind it. So I started actually a formal study, spiritual traditions. And then that led me into the field of quantum physics eventually. And that's not surprising because, as I said, the nexus there is that both quantum physics and ancient spiritual wisdom largely concern themselves with the nature of light, energy, and matter, which are all part of creation and the creative process. So then I, I, I after about oh, many, many years of research, I decided to write my first books, which were, um, you mentioned the First Souls trilogy. These, this is a, a, a geopolitical spiritual thriller uh, about the first souls to incarnate into materiality, and the trilogy traces their lives over different epochs of history at critical junctures when humanity is either going to evolve or sink back into darkness and ignorance. And the first book, for example, is called Pope Annalisa. It's about an African nun who becomes the first female pope at a time when America and Iran are going into a nuclear war. So after the trilogy was very well received and did very well critically, I had all this research, and about 35, 40 years of research, and I said, well, heck, let me put it into a sort of a systematic book to be a, like a roadmap, a guide to help people to have their own experiences with higher consciousness, and, and that resulted in the book Quantum Spirituality, which we're talking about today. Yeah, um, you know, that's the, the one thing, you know, and, and as I was going through and reading that section, you know, what stood out to me was the um, the idea of, you know, you having to um, kind of put aside any kind of um, logic, you know, when, when the images came to you, you, you know, kind of had to open yourself to them without, uh, judgment or explanation or, you know, or, or questioning even. Because I think, you know, sometimes when people start this, you know, journey of connecting, um, there is a, it can be a challenge to, um, recognize the images or however the information is received, you know, is that from a source um, versus a the mental process one has. Yeah. I mean, intuition comes in flashes, and there's no question that the majority of people kill their intuition in the first second that it arises. Our minds have a way, and they're so habituated into a left brain mode of thinking, um, which has become the sort of overriding of the modern world, that when we have these flashes of intuition, 
our mind is sort of trained to say that's ridiculous, it doesn't mean anything, and we dismiss these these great insights in the same moment that they arise. And it is a little bit of a learning process to get to the point where you don't let your mind do that anymore, where you really learn how to pay attention to your intuition when it happens. I used to get a tingling feeling, which was always a single uh, signal to me that I was getting mm-hmm. something of value. So I, it became like a built-in alarm for me to say, hey, wait a minute, pay attention to this. <laughs> uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, that that what came one for me, you know, the contract was just tingling. I mean, you know, it was, um, you know, because I, I was one to often, you know, question, you know, Intuition or, you know, monkey mind, you know, what kind of, what, which one was right. it? And, um, so I kind of, you know, let it be known that if you want me to be, pay attention, you gotta give me a little bit more of a, a clue here. And, um, so for me, that was, you know, a, a TV of the crown chakra gets my attention. So, um, yes. now, now you mentioned we we're talking a little bit about Gnosticism and the Gnostics. Um, so can you give us um, a little bit more detail, you know, as to who they were and the, some of the basic beliefs of Gnosticism? Sure. The Gnostics were the original Judeo-Christian mystics, but they actually preceded both Judaism and Christianity, and their genesis stretches into pagan times. The Gnostics primarily centered in the ancient city of Alexandria, Egypt, and Alexandria was the intellectual capital of the Western world. It was the city founded, the Greek city in Egypt founded by Alexander the Great, and it was the repository of uh, a couple of the greatest libraries on earth, which unfortunately were destroyed much to our great detriment. But uh, the Gnostics were in a both a geographical and intellectual position to sort of be a conduit for many other different traditions. I mean, we can clearly see elements of Hinduism and Buddhism uh, present in Gnosticism, as well as Hellenistic Greek philosophy, um, uh, the Jewish Kabbalah, and even Egyptian Hermeticism, all these ancient mystical traditions, which were incidentally very powerful. I mean, we, we have a terrible tendency to take these ancient traditions and say, oh, those were pagan, those were pre-Christian, you know, which is, is somehow puts them in the pejorative. But on the contrary, they probably had more insight than our modern religions have today. And the Gnostics were sort of the at the, at the center of that. And the thing that attracted me to the Gnostics more than any of the other ancient spiritual traditions was the fact that they were so scientific and precise in what they were describing that uh, they, in all honesty, one of the kind of major original revelations of my book is that they, they, they described every major theory of modern quantum physics like parallel universes, the Big Bang, the God particle, uh, energy matter conversion, and so forth, 3,000 years before um, the scientists of our age came upon these uh, these theories and ideas. So it's very interesting because the Gnostics, when Jesus of Nazareth began his ministry in Palestine, uh, the Gnostics became the first Christians because they saw that he was teaching a Gnostic message. Now, we know in the Bible that Jesus had two teachings. There was an inner mystical teaching, and then there was an outer teaching for the masses. And in every one of the Synoptic Gospels, it says, unto you, the disciples, I give the keys to the kingdom of heaven, but unto those without I speak in parables. We also have letters from the early church fathers, like the bishops uh, Clement and Origen, both of who were bishops of uh, Alexandria, that uh, c- uh, confirming that Jesus had a mystical teaching that was hidden away from the masses for fear that they would not understand it. It was too radical for fear that they would not understand it, and that um, it would fall into the wrong hands and be bastardized, in effect. So, uh, very clear evidence that Jesus was teaching and a secret teaching, which we now have Gospels that show the Gnostic Gospels that Jesus was teaching uh, that were uh, discovered primarily in 1945 in Egypt, a great find, the Nagamati Gospels. And then we had the Outer Church, which became the Orthodox Catholic Church that was essentially created by the Roman Empire. 
And for a while, these two churches coexisted side by side, but eventually the uh, Orthodox decided they had to get rid of the Gnostics for a couple of reasons. Um, for one thing, the Gnostics said, well, we don't really need priests. We don't really need a church, mm-hmm. per se. Um, we, 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 ha- we can have direct communion with higher powers. And that didn't set very well with the developing hierarchy of this outer church, of this developing Catholic church. It didn't it really kind of went against their power base. And also, I think, in a nutshell, the fundamental difference between the Gnostic Christians and Orthodox Christians was that the message that we still get today, officially from the church, is that we were separate creations from the Creator, and we kind of were given life uh, when he breathed, uh, 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 he breathed the breath of life into the dust of the earth, the clay of the earth, and formed humanity. And here we are bouncing around this lunatic asylum. And, oh, by the way, we ticked off God in the process, and now we're forever trying to get back into his good grace with original sin and everything else. So the Gnostics said that's ridiculous. First of all, we are not separate from the Creator. We are actually parts of the Creator. We're emanations or projections of the very consciousness that has formed and binds the very fabric of the universe at all levels of existence, and we are part of that. So if you think of the source or God, you can call it anything you want. I mean, the the name doesn't really matter. It's all the master source of consciousness. It's... We, we are not we are not separate from God, but if you have this source, and I mean I guess the best way to think of it is this: a power grid. Everyone can visualize a power grid. A power grid has the central mm-hmm. source, and then it has re- relay stations that essentially tamp down that source. They, they lower the voltage so that it becomes usable in households and other places. So it, the Gnostics are saying the same thing: that the the source energy, that great source energy, um, emanates the energy, and we are like the relay stations, which are sort of uh, limited versions of consciousness. We're, we're uh, diluted, tamped-down versions of consciousness, but we're still part of that relay system that goes on to create um, all the things, the phenomena that we know, like the physical world and everything else, and we are part of that creative process. Now, because of the fact that we are limited in our consciousness, we, we have essentially forgotten what our role is. We have forgotten the fact that we are part of this great chain, and we come to view ourselves as sort of what the church says, these sort of separate creations that are something apart from what created us. But that's a very unfortunate message that prevailed when Orthodox Christianity won out over the Gnostic mysticism. Yeah, yeah. I mean, that battle, you know, I mean, you can just see it as a, really as a a power and kind of a control strategy in order to, you know, have the masses reliant on the hierarchy of, of the church, you know, for that connection. And, um, and, I, and I think that, you know, as we are now learning, you know, that that, number one, that that hierarchy isn't really necessary to have that connection. And in looking at the, um, the idea of it being a, a power and control element, you know, I think there's a um, kind of a rebellious kind of um, itching, you know, in, in in humanity to, you know, feel more empowered, you know, and, and to kind of take control of their life rather than have it being dictated um, to them. Well, unfortunately, prophets speak the heart of God. Their followers start religions. So what happens is that uh, subsequent um, people will come in with various agendas and they kind of warp what the original message was. It's happened in every major religion, whether it's Christianity, Judaism, or Islam, and they warp the message and they turn it into a more materialistic uh, way of looking at the world. And incidentally, our Western religions are very materialistic in their outlook. Um, I could go into the reasons why, but that would be another subchapter in our talk here. But um, they, you know, which is one of which is one of the reasons, incidentally, why science was able to dismantle religion so effectively in the Western world because, you know, our our religions became way more materialist in their outlook than the original message. Because if you went back. to the very origins of Christianity, and you called any of the followers of Jesus Christians, they wouldn't know what you meant. There was no such thing as a Christian. That was a term that came later on. What they called themselves was the way 
Now, that very name indicates that it wasn't a religion, but it was a spiritual path, just like yoga is a spiritual path. They called themselves followers of the way. And Jesus, in his innermost teaching, his esoteric teaching, was teaching them all about consciousness, about energy, about the, the, the different dimensions of existence. And he was helping them come to what, I'm trying, not that I'm trying to equate myself with Jesus by any means, but I am trying to help people uh, get to the point on their spiritual journey where they can really have communion with these these higher sources of knowledge, the higher consciousness. And essentially, he and all the other great teachers were, were, the founders, were doing these these things before people came in and took what they were teaching and turned them into religions for all the purposes that you mentioned. Yeah, yeah, very much. Well, we're um, a little past halfway through the show, Peter, so I want to take just a quick break. And then when we come back, um, you know, you mentioned a little bit about the discovery of those gospels that were, that were found. And, um, in the book I read that many of the messages within those lost gospels, um, supported something called the perennial philosophy. So when we come back, I'd like to talk a little bit about that, uh, what that philosophy is, and, and you know how those teachings supported that. Okay? Sure. Great. Okay, everyone, stay tuned. We'll be right back after this brief break. Hello, this is Robert Sharp. I want to thank you for joining us, and hope you are enjoying today's show. Just a reminder: we have a wealth of information and resources available on our website www.byteradio.me. There is a calendar of upcoming shows, along with an archive link that will give you access to the more than 1,700 shows we have aired during the past 13 years. Also on the site are links to the products and services we provide. Books, photography products and services, calendars and greeting cards. There is also a link to our account at Fine Art America, where you can purchase items such as mugs, prints, pillows, and more. Our show is available as a free podcast on multiple platforms, such as iHeartRadio, TuneIn, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Audible, with icons to each platform on our homepage. We are also available on social media platforms, such as Facebook, X, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Threads. Our website, www.byteradio.me, has much for you to explore and enjoy. I also very much appreciate you supporting our guests, and especially today's guest. And now, back to the show. Okay, everyone. Thank you for staying with us again today. My special guest is Peter Canova. And we're talking about um, his work as well as his new book, Quantum Spirituality, Science, Gnostic Mysticism, and Connecting with Source Consciousness. Again, you can find out more by visiting Peter's website, which is www.petercanova.com. And also, you might want to pick up this book as as well as his um, award-winning trilogy, First Souls Trilogy. It sounds like a very interesting read. And I know quantum spirituality is. So, okay, with that, we're back, Peter. Yes. Um, Ready to talk. (laughs) Okay, great. So, you know, you mentioned during the first half about uh, the the discovery um, of the lost gospels. And and I think in the book you even, you know, made a comment about how coincidental or, you know, how – you know, this discovery was made, you know, or something, that may not have been the word, but, you know, the idea was um, interesting that this discovery should be happening during this period. But um, can you talk a little bit about, um, you know, a little bit about those Gospels and, and then the, the perennial philosophy, um, what that is? Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, uh, it's very interesting. Um, so, the Orthodox Church did an incredible job of suppressing the Gnostics. I mean, literally, they exterminated them physically and uh, and suppressed and burnt their various works. However, in 1945, 
some Egyptian peasant brothers were poking around with sticks looking for this fertilizer that uh, is often found in on these cliff sides in a town called Nakamani, Egypt. And in a cave, they happened to see these urns, these earthen clay urns. And at first they were reluctant to break them open because they thought that evil genies might be in there. But then their greed overcame their superstition because they said, well, then again, there might be gold there. So they broke them open and all these uh, papyrus documents spill out. And, uh, you know, at first they looked at them and they said, well, this has to do with Christians. This has nothing to do with us because they're Muslim, of course. And um, But they decided to take them with them anyway, and they brought them back to their home. Well, unfortunately... Uh, the mother burnt quite a few of them uh, for kindling, but uh, a number of them survived. And uh, it'll make a long, it's a very interesting story because they had actually um, murdered a guy who had murdered their father. It was kind of a revenge killing. And when the police started snooping around their place uh, in relation to this, they got afraid and they said, you know, because then they thought, well, maybe they'd get busted for having these uh, antiquities. So anyway, they worked their way out into the commercial market by, by one means or another. And it was discovered by astonished scholars that these were original works of the Gnostic masters. And uh, it, it, was, it was probably put there, there by monks from the Orthodox Seminary of St. Pacomius, which is nearby, when uh, Athanasius, who was a bishop of Alexandria, put down a decree against all Gnostic works and said, if you know what you're found in possession of, you're going to be in trouble. So we think that these monks may have hidden them over there in the caves. That's, that's the prevailing theory anyway. But the importance of it was that for the first time in a couple thousand years, we now have a direct voice into Gnosticism through the Gnostic masters, because prior to this, the primary way we knew the Gnostics was through their enemies, the church fathers. Um, Irenaeus and Hippolytus uh, wrote a lot of polemics against the Gnostics, and they described Gnostic beliefs uh, in those polemics, but not very trustworthy because obviously they had an axe to grind with the Gnostics. So now all of a sudden we have original Gnostic Gospels, and it sheds some very interesting light on, on history. For one thing, uh, the primary disciple of Jesus was not Peter, it was Mary Magdalene. In fact, Peter was pictured as kind of a jealous dunce who didn't really get Jesus' radical teachings, and Mary Magdalene had to explain uh, to him and to the other disciples to clarify what was going on. And the message of the Gnostic Gospels was certainly different from that of what the Orthodox Fathers were, were teaching. We already covered some of this. So that was the importance of the discovery of the Gnostic Gospels. Now, the perennial philosophy of which the Gnostic Gospels exemplify was really uh, a universal mystical wisdom that ran through every culture and every age with variations according to, you know, the modes and understandings of different cultures, but essentially common threads, uh, some of which we've already discussed, but the master consciousness exists that is the source of every object and dimension, visible and invisible, including our material world. Uh, our personal consciousness is part of this master creative force. The force is concealed from us, and there is a reason for that. The solid three-dimensional world that we perceive has no objective reality independent of our consciousness observing and creating it, so that we are living in a kind of simulated matrix, a, hol a holographic illusion in effect. And finally, they believe that anybody can use this knowledge um, to benefit their lives if they grow into understanding of this knowledge. So this was evident in Buddhism and Hinduism and Islam and uh, Judaic Kabbalah. That's why they call it the perennial philosophy, because it kept cropping up all the time. Now, when the Gnostics were essentially exterminated, they, they weren't completely exterminated, they were more like driven underground. So in the Middle Ages, you have the appearance of things like the tarot cards, the troubadours, um, Freemasons, all derived from Gnosticism in less obvious forms so that they wouldn't suffer the same fate <laughs> as, as the Gnostics did, which incidentally, that fate lasted all the way into France. Uh, in, into the 12th and 13th centuries because the predominant religion in southern France at that time was not Catholicism. It was called Catharism, Cathar, the Cathars. The Cathars were a completely Gnostic church with primarily female um, priesthood. 
And uh, essentially, the Pope didn't like the fact that there was an alternate church going on there that was opposed to the Church of Rome, and the King of France coveted their wealth because the nobles and the lands of southern France were far richer than the, than the northern uh, part of the kingdom. So the northern nobles uh, uh, fell behind the king and the pope, and they formed a crusade, which was the only crusade of Christians directed against other Christians, called the Albigensian Crusade. And over a century and a half or a couple of centuries, they literally eradicated uh, all of Gnosticism out of France, and that was the last gasp of the uh, organized Gnostic religion. But like I say, it went underground. Even the Knights Templars are uh, linked to Gnosticism and, and Gnostic beliefs, so but it never really, really dies. And that's just, that was the interesting gen- uh, evolution or, or destruction and then re- resurgence of Gnosticism. It is, you know, and they learned from the past. <laughs> so you know, as far as being. Uh, being able to avoid any kind of uh, extermination, um, to try and, and mask, um, you know, mask the message in a way. Um, now, you know, and you mentioned, you know, Mary Magdalene being a primary disciple, and you know, you, you were talking about the, um, the feminine um, hierarchy in the. I can't remember how, the word you said. Um, the cast. Something cathars. Cathars. Yeah, I'm sorry. So, so now, in in your book, you talk also about the the sacred feminine. So, um, you know, and that the Gnostics had basically followed a feminine path. So, can you talk a little bit about that? Because, you know, it is it's clear that you know the the church really, you know demanded or pounded, you know, the, the masculine um, hierarchy um, in its, um, you know, establishment. Um, so can you talk a little bit about, you know, the idea of, of a sacred feminine, you know, and the fact of maybe it's, it wasn't maybe lost, but, I mean, it's re, being rediscovered in a way. Yeah, uh Prior to 3000 BC, most of the societies in, uh, that we know were uh, matrilineal or, you know, sometimes even ruled by women or, or certainly uh, were uh, worshipped the sacred feminine, which was nothing more or less honestly than the feminine principle being incorporated into everyday life. And that feminine principle is feeling intuition as opposed to logic and analysis. So you would have a respect for um, the unseen. Uh, I always say that the feminine is the gateway to the unseen because for the most part, we don't, like Sherlock Holmes, go through a deductive process and find God. <laughs> we we usually, you know, it usually happens through, um, uh, you know, intuitive subjective experiences. So they would honor those in, in these ancient societies. Now, at, there came a point in time when the male um, way of doing things, the patriarchal way, which was, you know, more uh, forceful, uh, analyzing, logical, uh, and materialistic, became prevalent. Uh, and there's probably reasons for that, because when humans first, human souls first came into this earth, they were probably much closer to the nature that generated them. So they would have been more intuitive and the world would have been more magical and so forth. But then, you know, these these souls find themselves in physical bodies and saber-toothed tigers are chasing them around. And uh, they have rain and they have cold and they have to have shelter and fire and everything else. So you can see after a while they have to sort of organize, rationalize, and uh, use these uh, left-brain principles to control the environment. So eventually the patriarchal way of doing things became dominant and that female... Uh, principle became suppressed. And we see that very much in the story of Mary Magdalene and the Gnostic Christianity. It's very interesting that in Ephesus, which was a, a Greek city, became a Greco, Greco-Roman city, uh, like so many other cities in the coast of Turkey and Anatolia were uh, Greek cities at the time and Greek and Roman cities at the time. And Ephesus was one of the three greatest cities of ancient times. I've been there myself. It's just fantastic. And there uh, is a cave a little bit north of the city. And inside the cave, they found a very interesting ancient mural in there 
of two saints of the early Christian church were Paul, St. Paul, who we all know in the Bible, and St. Thecla, who is became not as well known, but she was, it, it, the mural showed Thecla sitting higher than Paul, which in ancient times would have indicated that she was more revered, more respected than Paul. But what happened was, over time, uh, the, the, they, they chipped away at Thecla's eyes and they chipped away at her fingers. Both Thecla and Paul were making the sign of the bishop with their fingers, which is a sign of authority, which, very interestingly enough, you can see in certain Buddhist statues from the Far East, okay? But they were making a particular sign, which is called the sign of the bishop with their fingers. Well, they left Paul alone, but they chipped away Thecla's eyes and they chipped away her fingers. And, this was, to me and, and many others, physical evidence of the transition that was going on where the females and the feminine principle was being pushed aside or suppressed and the, you know, the sort of male energy and, and way of looking at things had started to take over Christianity. So right there we had some physical evidence of this whole evolutionary phenomenon happening. Very, it's very, it's kind of depressing, but it's also interesting. <laughs> Well, well, it's interesting because, you know, it really does um, show a journey in a way, you know, the, the, you know from a an environment where, you know, the feminine energy uh, um, of feeling and intuition, you know, reigned, you know, to one where the, the male energy kind of pops in and now we're going – I, I believe maybe to recognize the importance of both, I guess, you know, that, that both have equal um, importance in one's daily life. Well, Carl Jung, the famous death, founder of modern death psychology, said the exact same thing 2,000 years later that the Gospel of Thomas had Jesus saying, and Jesus said, when you make the male the female and the female the male and the two become one, then you shall realize the kingdom of heaven and move mountains. Carl Jung basically said, when we take our feminine side, which is the anima, and it merges with the male side, the animus, and we become a balanced individual, an actualized individual, then we become something greater than just being human. So, obviously, you know, it's like saying, okay, get your left brain and your right brain working together in, in synchronicity, in, in, in unison, and then, you know, you really, you really start to propel yourself in life. So yeah. I liken it to a, a rocket. Okay, a rocket it has two basic component systems. It has the fuel and the guidance system. So I liken the fuel to the female, the intuition, that kind of, mm -hmm. you know, lifts you up off the ground to, to you know, pressing you towards this higher consciousness. But once you get up there, if you don't have the guidance system, you just go around in circles. By the same token, if you have the, um, you know, the guidance system but not the fuel, you'll never get off the ground. So both the female and the male qualities are, are necessary for us to progress. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a good visual to, to bring home the point. Um, well, now um, we're starting to wind down the show, but there's a couple more um, topics um, in your book that I just wanted to maybe touch upon. And one of them was called the, the chapter was called the Fall: How Spirit Descended. Um, and this was, I think, this was a, a chapter they had to go back and read a couple times because it was, um, to me, it was a. Uh, a new concept for me it was a new concept and, and how you know spirit um i'm going to defended but uh was various forms of spirit were formed i guess so and i might not be putting that in the proper terminology but can you talk a little bit about the idea of of the fall in, in the descending of spirit um the one source, the one consciousness, projected itself out into different points of consciousness in order to know itself. Now, you think, well, you know, God, that's, we're speaking about God here. What does that mean, God knowing itself? Well, think of it for a second. If you're eternity, if you're everything, if, if, if you encompass everything in your eternity, no space and no time, 
it's a static existence. You, you, you exist, but you don't experience anything. So God, or the source, projected out other points of its own consciousness in a diluted form, which had to be diluted, incidentally. We'll speak about that in a minute. But he, he uh, I say he, he, she, uh, it projected out uh, points of its own consciousness in order to almost act like companions or mirrors to reflect upon itself. And think about that for a second. I mean, we only understand ourselves. We can't understand ourselves in a vacuum. We can only understand ourselves by other reference points, by other people, by other objects, or whatever. If we were just caught in a, uh, a void where there was nothing around us, nobody around us, nothing, we what would we know about ourselves? You know, we wouldn't have any experience. We'd just be floating in, you know, this kind of eternal darkness. So the source projected out these other points of consciousness. Now, they were, by by necessity, diluted or limited points of consciousness. Why limited? Because if they weren't limited, they wouldn't have individuality. In order to have individuality differentiated from the source that, that projected you, you have to have a different frequency or vibration. And, and this is, this incidentally, this is recognizing quantum physics. The whole basis of energy is that there is one energy, but it's variable frequencies of that energy that create the differentiation and the different forms that we know. So the energy itself remains the, the same, but, but there are uh, variations in the form of vibrations or frequencies that, uh, uh, or, which are variations on that energy that are introduced that differentiate things. So the the projected um, entities or consciousness had to be limited in order to have the sense of being individuals, and that is that is where the fall. Now this is you asked probably one of the deepest subjects at the end of the show, so <laughs> it's, it's kind of hard to to have the time to adequately explain this. But but um, essentially there was uh, in the Gnostic story uh, there was the youngest consciousness, the, the one that was projected the latest, uh, was called Sophia, which is wisdom. And these were names that were given to different aspects of God. They were love, justice, truth, mercy, mercy. They were archetypes. And essentially, they were aspects of the one consciousness. And, you know, wisdom, how does wisdom grow? Through experience. So Sophia, being the, the most curious of them all, says, you know, to herself, in effect, I'm being a little pejorative here, but she says to herself, in effect, you know, I wonder what it would be like to create on my own, to experience on my own. So she projects herself out into the void, which we, we call today in modern science the quantum field. She projects herself out onto this void, and she engenders a whole series of new experiences which lead to new dimensions that ultimately uh, filter on down to the material world as as we know it. So the fall um, in the Gnostic sense was not just a single fall from heaven like the traditional Christian mm -hmm. story. It was really a series of falls. It was first a fall into a, um, a new psychic dimension, a new energetic dimension, and then later on a fall into a material dimension. Uh, but I think the key thing to understand in the fall here is it was really the fall you can equate with a limitation of consciousness. Picture the rungs of a ladder, and they were projecting out, you know, this one will project that one, and that one will project that one. And, you know, it was like the rungs of a ladder, but each time you went lower in the ladder, you went lower in consciousness. So until mm -hmm. the, probably the lowest state we have is ourselves, which is consciousness in a material form, consciousness that thinks it's a material form. Uh, yeah, that was, I, I found that, you know, particular section interesting because, you know, it, it I mean, from my Catholic upbringing, there was absolutely nothing, you know, that would point to anything like that at all, you know, and, um, yeah, but and I, I think in the book, uh, hopefully when, hopefully if people get the book, it, it explains this whole thing in much greater detail and you can really see the beauty of this story. It explains so much about reality. Um, but I, you know, we don't really have time to go into that kind of detail, so I kind of tried to give you the Reader's Digest version. Right, right, yeah, and, and you know, thank you for that. That's you know, and you know, again, if the people when the people get the book and read it, um, I'm sure that they will find it an interesting read, like like I did. Um, and of course, leave it to me to pick the, one of the most deepest subjects toward the end of the show, but. But that's okay. It'll it'll hopefully drive people to to go ahead and get the book and read it. Um, but the last mm -hmm. topic I want to bring up 
is um, there was a, a chapter called The Force of Opposition, The Dark Side of Spirit. So, um, you know, as I was going through and reading the book, you know, I didn't really get to the sense of a, a dark side or an opposition. So can you talk just a little bit, obviously we don't have a whole lot of time, but just a little bit about the idea of opposition? Yeah, well, um, opposition to the, the one, the one source is something that is evident in every major spiritual tradition, um, described in somewhat different ways, but essentially the same thing. So really opposition, um, is the principle that permeates the creation right from the beginning. And it's, it's important to understand the symbolism here. Opposition is the, that force which pulls being, beings, conscious beings, away from the unity to achieve individual desire. Um, the force of opposition was present right at the beginning. It had to be because those points, those beings or points of consciousness that flowed from the source had to have free will to be true individuals. And free will can't exist without choice. So a choice had to be present. And the choice was whether to align or stay with God's will or pursue their own desires. So, uh, when, you know, think of these beings. Uh, all right, since we're talking to a largely Judeo-Christian audience, you can think of these projected beings as uh, as angels. No, they're not really. It's explained more in my book that they were, they were, they were really more than that. But let's... You know, let's use that yeah. reference point. So their choice was whether to align with God's will or pursue their own desires or to go in an opposite direction from, from the whole. So opposition was there right from the beginning, which was, a, which, which created a choice that was provided to these beings in order to have them exercise free will, which is, which is what truly makes an individual. And it's very interesting that the original concept of Satan uh, in in Judaism was not this cloven hoofed horned being, this evil being. He, he, Satan was the angel of opposition, and in fact performed a service to humanity because creating opposition it allowed human beings to overcome that opposition and there, therefore become stronger, therefore become more knowledgeable and, and, and spiritual. So opposition actually played a positive role at the end of the day, even though it didn't seem so on its face. So that that was really the, the force of uh, opposition. Uh, I think um, the, in the, in the, uh, uh, in the where was it, the Dead Sea Scrolls or somewhere in the Jewish tradition, they said that uh, they called it the spirit of perversity and darkness, and they said that, oh, yeah, it's in the Dead Sea Scrolls. The, the, it's the spirit of perversity or darkness that indwells within each believer that has to struggle to overcome it so that the light will shine and that believer may thus begin a higher ascent through the unification. In other words, if we, if we limited ourselves into this lower state of existence, because we're still part of this consciousness, we have the ability to regain our higher state and move back up. But we only move back up after experiencing opposition and overcoming that opposition, which isn't, isn't that really the story of life? You know, we, we, we have a lot of struggles here. We have to overcome those struggles to, raise, to rise above them in order to reach a higher state. So it's really, kind of, in a way, kind of the story of life. But that, that, that is uh, probably the best quick description I can give you of what opposition, the, the role that opposition played in the creation. Well, great, thank you, and that was a wonderful uh, explanation, and and it really does um, make you think, you know, of, of you know, and, and recognize, like you said, I mean, it's kind of like the story of life, you know, we're we're confronted with all kinds of um, limiting beliefs and, and thoughts, and the um, escape from them to into reconnection, uh, to reconnection is is the is an unfolding. You know, and it kind of, to me, it seems like it's a, it's a way of, um, showing that as an individual, one can, um, achieve and, and kind of get back to, you know, that, that, that source, that, you know, empowerment, you know, and, and recognize, recognition of. That's it in a nutshell. There you go. Good. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. I really enjoyed our conversation, and um, I appreciate you spending your time with us. Well, thank you for having me.
You're very welcome. Again, everyone, today my special guest has been Peter Canova. We've been talking about his new book, Quantum Spirituality, Science, Gnostic Mysticism, and Connecting with Source Consciousness. And again, you can find out more by visiting his website, which is www.petercanova.com. And definitely check out not only the Quantum Spirituality book, but also his award-winning First Souls trilogy. Um, everyone, I want to thank you for joining us for this edition of the Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. And until we meet again, thank you for tuning in. You've been listening to BikeRadio.me's Bringing Inspiration to Earth show. To become a show follower, visit www.blogtalkradio forward slash me and click on the follow link. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at Byte Radio Me. Be sure to visit our website at www.byteradio.me. That's B-I-T-E-R-A-D-I-O dot M-E. And until we meet again, remember to be a bright light by bringing inspiration to your world and to the lives of those you touch.